we all benefit from uh, 2020 hindsight, but think about it. If we would have been allowed in 1996 to render bin Laden, even temporarily, even if after a year we had to return them to Saudi Arabia or God forbid anywhere else, you know, the attack on the coal probably would have not happened. The bombing of our two embassies in Africa simultaneously would have not happened. We lost thousands of, of, of lives there. And even 9-11 arguably wouldn't happen. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. I write a blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Well, the Central Intelligence Agency, better known as the CIA, is the principal foreign intelligence and counterintelligence agency of the United States government. The CIA's primary job is collecting and analyzing foreign intelligence and conducting covert action. And U.S. policymakers, including the president of the United States, make those policy decisions based on the information provided by the CIA. Well, today we have a very special episode of Lawyer to Lawyer, where we're going to speak with a highly decorated hero and CIA shadow warrior who spent years fighting to protect a nation and a home that welcomed him as a child of communist repression. Our guest today is Enrique Rick Prado. He's the author of a book just released this last month, Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior from St. Martin's Press. Rick spent 24 years in the CIA with a career spanning both the Cold War and the age of terrorism. Mr. Prado received the CIA Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, that's the highest award given upon retirement, and the George Bush Award for Excellence in Counterterrorism, among other things. He's a paramilitary counterterrorism and special clandestine operations specialist. He served as an operations officer in six overseas posts, and upon leaving public service, Rick worked as an executive at a private military contractor where he built a specialized operations team. He's currently the co-owner of Camp X Training, where he continues his service training and supporting the spec ops community, teaching advanced special operations and techniques, among other essential skills. Welcome to the show, Rick. Thank you for having me, Craig. Rick, I have to say it's a tremendous honor to have you on the show. I don't think we've had, in the 15 years we've been doing this, had anyone quite as... uh, colorful, I would say. (laughs) You've lived quite a life. Can you give us a little bit about your backstory about how you became a CIA operative? Well, uh, I actually um, went into pararescue, Air Force pararescue in 1971 with the intentions of going to Vietnam. I'm Cuban born. Uh, I came to this country in 1962 by myself to an orphanage in Pueblo, Colorado. And having witnessed what had happened to my first country and the, uh, the atrocities committed and the confiscations and the clothing of church and everything else, and then coming to a place like the United States, uh, even, even a, a 10-year-old, I turned 11 in the orphanage, even an 11-year-old could see that this was a very, very different uh, kind of environment. So as I grew up, well, senior in high school, I grew conscious. I felt that I really needed to uh, pay back this wonderful country for what they did for my family and, and other colleagues. And, and uh, 50 years later, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the, pretty much the same thing in different incarnations. Right. And I read through parts of your book, especially 
the life you lived as a child in Cuba, and there were some specific things that happened to you with your abuela and your abuelo that had some big effects on your decision to become into the military. Yes, I mean, uh, my, uh, you know, nobody in my family ever wore a, a uniform, so that was very alien to me. My, grand, my maternal grandfather was a very, very cool guy, very stoic. And uh, the, during the revolution, there was a couple of firefights in my town, which I witnessed, and people getting shot and everything else. And then what, uh, what happened was when they were going to take over the town for real, one of the guys in the, in the guerrilla band was one of the team leaders was a cousin of my dad. So he snuck into our house, um, knocked on the back door, uh, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning to talk to my dad. And I woke up, my mom was up and he came in to tell us, look, we're taking the town in two days. You nor your wife can leave because counterintelligence wise, they would perhaps come to the conclusion that you're leaving for a reason, but we will allow you to take your son out with some other family member. This was, like I said, two or three o'clock in the morning. And, and, and one of the highlights of that was he had a Thompson submachine gun and he put it on my lap. And of course, Thompson weighs like 11, 11 pounds or 12 pounds. So that, that, that began the love with uh, those kind of toys. So I moved to Santa Clara, which was the capital at the time of the state. And um, the, the rebels came in, took over the town. And now my grandfather was bringing me back. And I think the highlight of that one, which again, part of my uh, forging process, there was a very tall bridge, uh, and I checked with my dad uh, before he passed, and it was, it was a good, you know, 75 feet off the ground, if not more, and fast water and rocks. And what the rebels had done, they had taken all the planks out of the bridge. So all that was left was the railings and these, I would say, four by four, or though they look smaller, uh, beams on the side. And my, my grandfather looks at me, he goes, uh, we, we have to cross this. And I go, okay. He goes, are you afraid? And of course I said, no, but that was not the truth. So he grabbed me by the wrist, one, you know, my, my left hand, my right hand, he had by the wrist. And he, we literally sidestepped across the, the river, holding onto the railing and him holding onto my arm. That was quite an experience. I, I could still, that's tattooed in my brain, looking down at that river and seeing the jagged rocks in the water. So that, that's how it started. And the effect of that communist regime taking over your town, taking over your father's coffee business, your car, and, and, and all your possessions, that, that had an effect, didn't it? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, uh, the, uh, the effect of the Cuban Revolution, of the Castro Revolution, was almost instant. Uh, my dad owned a small coffee roasting company. Uh, he employed 10 people, so he wasn't exactly a capitalist. And they confiscated that within six months. And within immediately, I was, you know, I had to wear a uniform to go to school and do this little flag thing. And it was very militaristic from the very beginning. Fast forward just a few months later, uh, after they confiscated my dad's business and Bay of Pigs happened, uh, because I was in Cuba for the uh, Bay of Pigs uh, attack. And uh, my father decided, well, this doesn't work. I need to get, we got to get out of here. I'm not going to have my son grow in, in, under this kind of communist ruling. So one of our trips to Havana to start the process of trying to leave, they had just had some summary trials and there were literally people hanging, guys hanging from trees by the neck with, with signs on them that said counter-revolutionary. And my mom desperately tried to jump in the back seat to block my eyes, but it was too late. Uh, that one's tattooed in there too. So I, I saw at a very, very young age, I was probably nine years old when this happened uh, in, in Cuba because we did a whole year in Havana trying to get out. 
I, I, I knew that I was leaving something evil. And then when I got to the United States, I, I found the opposite. Well, your choice was either to come to the United States or be sent to the Soviet Union, wasn't that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you read the book. Um, yeah, my, my uncle, step-uncle, I guess you call it, he was a professor at the school that I was at, the Colegio Martí in, in Santa Clara. And he got wind that there was a list of uh, kids that they were recommending for going to Russia to study, and my name was on the uh, on the list. So that was one of the... Uh, the other catalyst for getting my, my dad out. My, my mom and dad could not get out at first. So they actually um, sent me to the United States by myself. And, you know, that act of courage and conviction on the part of my father to put his only child going to a country that he, may, he has never been to, may never be able to visit, may never see his son again. And the only reason he did that was he did not want me to leave, live under communism. So that, that, that's another big lesson for me when I look back on, on, on courage and determination, conviction and, and commitment was that decision by my, my father. Because to tell you the truth, when my oldest son turned 10, I looked at my wife and I said, do you think that we could do this? She said, absolutely not. That takes a huge amount of strength. And you ended up spending two years in an orphanage in Pueblo, uh, adapting and waiting until your parents were able to get here. It's, a, it's an amazing story. Looking back now, 50 years, you've gone through, you know, field work. You've gone through the George Washington University to get your degree. You've gone through the farm and learning tradecraft. How does this background that you have fit into the way that the CIA recruits operations officers to get into the system? Well, like, like most of my career, uh, it was never planned. I believe that, uh, God puts in front of us a path that we're supposed to take. And if we have the courage to, uh, to pay the price of admission, uh, we'll have a, uh, a good life because that's what we were intended to do. In this particular case, uh, out of pararescue, like I said, I joined pararescue in 1971. And that's a very elite unit in, in, in the Air Force. And my goal was to go to Vietnam. Uh, I had developed this debt of honor that I thought that I need to pay this country back. And that was the only way I could think of was with joining the military and trying to go to Vietnam. As destiny would have it, by the time that I got my beret in, in very late 72, early 73, Vietnam was pretty much over. So after two years between training and one year active duty, um, I, I went into the reserves. And then I applied twice for the agency, first in 74. And they said, look, we're firing, not hiring. And then I did it again in 1980, and this time they brought me in on contract because they needed paramedics to train with their special operations guys that had my kind of background. And so I started working contract with them uh, while I was still writing rescue in Metro Miami. So uh, Metro Dade County back then. Come early 1981, the Sandinistas, the phenomenon of, of being a communist uh, puppet of, of Cuba and of uh, the Soviet Union, Reagan came in and decided that we needed to stop that because he, they were fomenting uh, insurgencies in El Salvador and Guatemala and in Bolivia, you name it. So they called me. They said, "Look, we we uh, we have a work we have work for you. We need we don't have a native Spanish speaking paramilitary officer that can pass off for a non gringo." And that's how I backdoor the agency. And you practically went right from walking in the front door of the agency to. Honduras and Nicaragua. I had zero training. They gave me a couple of days worth of briefings. 
about what was going on in Nicaragua, uh, the atmospherics of, of the Honduran support. They gave me some alias documentation and uh, put me on a plane. And you became Alex. I became Alex. That's correct. <laughs> well, let's let's take a look at that that big picture. I mean, you uh, let's admittedly kind of point out to our listeners what you were doing there. You were the point man meeting with the various Contra groups, arming them and providing paramilitary training to have them fight back against uh, the Sandinistas. Yeah, I mean, for the first 14 months of the, I was there for a little over three years and I literally slept in a jungle hammock Monday through Friday for most of that time that I was there. But for the first 14 months, I was the only uh, American allowed to go to the camps because we were still hiding the American hand. Once that became more of a public knowledge for 14 or so months later, then we started bringing in some additional personnel to the camps. Only two actually at first, one, uh, two former special forces uh, Green Beret contractors. I want to get into the legal questions that flow from from that kind of involvement and your other involvement, in, as you describe later in the book. But there's one thing that I think our listeners really deserve to hear the story about, and that is you facing off against 600 angry men who were about ready to take out your main contact. Yeah, Stedman Faggoth was the uh, the leader of the, the of the Mosquito Indians. Mosquito Indians are Native Americans mixed with black slaves. Uh, they're they're native to the east coast of Nicaragua and partially uh, Honduras. You know, I had trained every single one of these guys. These these guys knew me. They uh, you know I, I I patrolled with them. I showed them how to fire everything from RPG sevens to set the headspace and timing on a fifty cal. And so I, I had equities with them. And so what happened was they thought, because the communist, the Sandinista had a very good, like all communists, they have a very good disinformation machine. And they were trying to undermine Stedman Fagath because he was unifying all the Mosquito uh, into a very viable uh, fighting force. They were arguably my, my, my favorite group out there. So through people that had infiltrated, they fomented this problem that, 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 uh, Stedman was stealing from them, and that's why they were not getting resupply. Well, they didn't know that we had political problems back in the States that had slowed down our, our cooperation. So uh, I found out uh, when I got back to my office that, uh, that Stedman was going to, um, to Puerto Limpida and then to Roos Roos, which was the camp that we were going to be at. They told me that the guy that we had there on the ground left because the, yeah, there was a lot of... Uh, <laughs> angry Native Americans uh, with bandoliers saying that they were going to lynch uh, Stedman Faggoth when he got in. So uh, I got my small Hughes 500 helicopter that, um, that I was sitting in the co-pilot seat, and uh, we made it in record time to, uh, to Roos Roos. And by the time that Stedman came in, I was already on the ground. I told him what happened. Uh, he says, what are you doing here? And I said, you're my friend. I don't leave my friends behind. So, you know, everybody thinks that this is a Rambo kind of move. I had my browning on my side just because that's a habit, but I didn't even take my M16 with me to the meeting because 600 of them, what am I going to do with them, right? But what I did do is I sat around the fire and I said, okay, I want to listen to your grievances. And they were grieving and they were bitching and they were very, very angry. And then I looked at them and said, listen, this is, this is the way this is. You're, you guys are fighting for a democracy. So if you can get the rest of the Misuda Sata organization to vote Stedman Faggoth out of power, we will, we will honor that. We will respect that. But if you touch one hair of his head, 
I will personally lead the troops that'll go out and get you guys. Now, these guys, like I said, had trained with me for, for well over a year now, so that they knew that I've been business. And, I, and then I promised them, I said, look, he is not stealing from you. Nobody's getting resupply. We're having these issues with the government. That's being fixed. And I promise you, I'll have some supplies for you here tomorrow. So I literally got on the radio, even unsecure, because the guy that before me had taken off our, our one-time pads. And I told my boss, uh, Colonel Ray, I said, hey, whatever you do, I need a couple of aircrafts full of beans and bullets over here by tomorrow. And lucky for me, uh, eight o'clock in the morning, those planes were landing in Roos Roos and, uh, you know, peace uh, reigned again in the land. I can't imagine that. That's just amazing. Well, Rick, we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu slash interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm joined by Rick Prado, a once covert operator of major rank and standing with the CIA, and also the author of Black Ops, The Life of a CIA Shadow Warrior. Personally, having read the book, I highly recommend it. it it's an amazing read. Rick, it just blows my mind that you've gone through this. Uh, it, it really harkens back to, I think, what I read in the beginning of your book, where you said, if you get hit, hit back harder. Yeah. <laughs> it's a tough mantra, and it's, I think, a mantra that you used in in throughout your life. But I'm curious about what you think from the standpoint of the political involvement that you faced as a field operative, now knowing what you know in your other positions in the CIA. But should more decision-making authority be vested in field operatives? 
Well, you know, the, the agency has always, until it's been reduced of late, but the agency had the system that we have, the chief of station in a country is sits to the right hand of God. Uh, even headquarters will listen to them first. You really have to screw up as a chief of station to get headquarters on, on your case because our leadership is all made from people that made it through the ranks and, and they work for COSs and now they've been COSs. Now they were division chiefs or whatever. So that respect was there. So there was a lot of authority at, at the chief of station level for the greater part of my, of my career. Albeit later on in, in the early 2000s, that was uh, degraded uh, uh, quite a bit. And I think, you know, uh, the, for whatever reasons, but, but absolutely. I, I felt that for the most part, they would listen to us when we had uh, something to say in it, but it was always through the chief of station. You've talked uh, on the CBS Sunday morning interview that you did about bin Laden and the CIA's opportunities being so close to him to take him out and, and honestly prevent 911 or at least bring him in for questioning, as you said. What was the hold back there? Well, you know, yes, I, I'm a plank owner of the bin Laden uh, task force. I was the deputy chief of station. We started that late 95, early uh, 96. And uh, shortly thereafter, I mean, we literally had a, a very good friend of mine who was also part of the CBS program at the end, uh, Billy Waugh, uh, a legendary Green Beret and a legendary uh, contractor to the agency for 20 some years afterwards. Billy was literally uh, hiding in a safe house overlooking Bin Laden's compound. And the first photographs that we got was by Billy taking him of, of Bin Laden. We knew what his security detail, if you want to call it that, uh, was. We knew what car he drove. He often got in his car by himself to go to places because at the time, Khartoum, Sudan, uh, was literally a hotel for terrorists. Terrorists of all ill could go there, and as long as they paid the right money, they could live there. They would have driver's license, and nobody would mess with them. And that, that was the case with tons of, of terrorists, and that's what Billy was there to do, keep tabs on them. Billy Waugh is the guy that actually found Carlos the Jackal, Elis Ramirez, one of the most renowned, you know, renowned uh, terrorists of, in Europe uh, in those years. But anyway, we, the agency, and we from, from the, the uh, Latin station, we proposed several times uh, up the ladder to allow us to interdict Bin Laden, to disrupt Bin Laden. Well, I'm not talking about necessarily shooting them, although Billy Waugh himself told me, he says, look, I was so close to him yesterday that I could have stabbed him with a pencil. But we knew that we could take a small team of guys in there, well-trained with the right, and literally kidnap him and drag him out and bring him to justice. Now, we all benefit from 2020 hindsight, but think about it. If we would have been allowed in 1996 to render Bin Laden, even temporarily, even if after a year we had to return him to Saudi Arabia or God forbid anywhere else, you know, the attack on the coal probably would have not happened. The bombing of our two embassies in Africa simultaneously would have not happened. We lost thousands of, of, of lives there. And even 9-11 arguably wouldn't happen. So what is the, what's the evidentiary standard that you use to determine whether you want to interdict someone? And what is the standard that's used by the people higher up to make a decision whether to do that or not? Well, you know, at, at, at the operational level, we had all the dots and all the, uh, the T's crossed. We had everything uh, in line. We knew that he was training some very radical Muslim Arabs. He, he came from the Taliban, which is primarily Afghani. 
And he is Saudi. He was Saudi. But we knew that he was training these really radicalized former Mujahideen. He had several training camps that we knew from overhead and everything else that were, they were training in, in uh, terrorist tactics. Uh, we knew that he was donating incredible amount of money to uh, other uh, causes. And, you know, the way that I described him when I was in the Bin Laden task force, I said, you know, this guy is the, he's becoming the godfather of terrorism. He is developing ties with so many different organizations that he is really force multiplying and coordinating a lot of these things. And that's what Al-Qaeda actually stands for. It means the base. He became the base that, you know, linked up with all these other uh, terrorist organizations out there. I'm going to preface my next question with a point, a very fine point I think you made in your book, which is that in America, we think that it's uh, everything should be fair play and due process. But once you leave our boundaries, the rest of the world is not like that. It's full of corruption and evil people and people that don't care about the ultimate outcomes. But there has to be, you know, as an American, you have to ask this question of the CIA. Should we be applying the United States Constitution and our morals and, and the things that we live by to foreign nationals in circumstances like this? Or which laws should we be applying? Or do we just apply a moral code of what we know is correct? I think a moral code of what we know is correct is a much better than, than affording people the privileges that we have in the United States because we have millions of Americans that have died for that freedom. And there's a lot of people out there that don't deserve that. They're not our neighbors. They're not our friends. They're our enemies. And you cannot judge the morality of your enemy by your own. You'll lose every time. There's things that the terrorists would do that I could, could never do. Shoot a kid just to force a father to go blow something up. Happened to us in Iraq. So I'm, I'm a firm believer that the U.S. Constitution in the U.S. is, is, is hallowed ground. That's where these things apply. And everybody else is in, in, a, uh, in a let's see who you are kind of mode. Obviously, we have our allies, the Brits and stuff like that. We, we, we would never you know, work against them. But the one thing that I can guarantee you is the age, I never, in the tw almost 25 years that I had was in CIA, I never thought, saw us targeting anybody for either arrest or, or for, you know, um, you know, compromising him with the cops or whatever, that it wasn't morally justified. We knew that these individuals were out to do us harm and uh, we needed to do that, you know, to, to take... Uh, take OpCon and, and, and uh, prevent that. Well, I have to take this conversation and turn it to current events. You know, we have the situation between Russia and Ukraine. We've had at least one United States senator call for Putin's assassination and been roundly criticized for that because, you know, it certainly opens up the vice versa, you know, that Russia could try and assassinate our president. What's your perspective on what we can do in this instance from a covert standpoint to be able to resolve this. And, you know, don't give away any CIA secrets here, but <laughs> what are your thoughts? Well, let, let me start by saying that, again, you cannot judge our morality by, the, by, by that of our enemies. How many opposition leaders has Putin killed, assassinated with injections and with uh, radiological uh, components or toxics and, and all these kind of things? So there's nothing we would do that would make them more prone or more, you know, more willing to, to do us that kind of harm. I guarantee you, if they, if they could get to Zelensky, they would. They've tried three times and failed. 
if they if they really thought that uh, the Biden was a, uh, a, a, a an impediment to their uh, to their effort and they could get to him, they would have no qualms about doing anything like that. I don't believe that we're in a position to uh, to assassinate anybody, especially the head of a, of a country. What I think the uh, the senator said was, I hope somebody from his ranks puts a bullet in his head. Now, there, there's two sides of this argument. First of all, again, with the benefit of the 2020 hindsight, imagine if we would have been able to put a bullet through a surrogate in, in uh, Hitler's head in 1938. How many millions and millions of lives on both sides of the fence would have been saved? So what I said, uh, and I said this in a, in a, in a later interview, You know, what I would hope is that some of these oligarchs, there are a hundred billionaire oligarchs in, in Russia and they are bleeding money. Their yachts are being confiscated. Their accounts are being frozen. These guys are literally losing tens of million dollars a day. That one of those or the collection of them could force Putin out. Now, force Putin out could be uh, buying up all the opposition or having somebody taking them out, that's their problem. Where, where the senator was a little naive was nobody that's really next to Putin, that is part of his inner circle, is going to kill Putin. Uh, even if there's a little bit of love lost, they're on the same boat. If Putin dies, those guys die. So, but again, I think the oligarchs uh, have the power, the money, and definitely the, uh, the, you know, the incentive for trying to... Um, To, to stop him from doing this stuff. And to tell you the truth, I honestly think that uh, Putin had made a very bad decision and he's desperately trying to prove otherwise. Right. Well, and what's going on now in terms of the supply lines from the NATO countries uh, moving into Ukraine has quite a lot of an echo from what you did with the, with the Contras. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking a very similar program. Um, I actually, when Venezuela was really being... Uh, you know, problematic a couple of years ago, I spoke to a friend of mine who at the time was at the NSC and I said, look, why don't we start a Contra Part Two program? You know, we have Colombia, we have Panama nearby. We can definitely do two different fronts and um, we don't have to fight. All we have to do is train the brave Venezuelans that are leaving in droves and do like a Contra program Part Two." He thought it was a great idea, but it never got political traction. Uh, why? I don't know. I mean, you have uh, a lot of oil and um, a lot of enemies in our backyard. Yeah, and certainly circumstances now that uh, are going to change the relationship between the United States and Venezuela because of the oil. That's correct. Right. That's correct. Well, Rick, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. I could go on for hours just sitting down talking with you and you know, reminiscing or hearing about your stories because they're It's uh, it's almost like it's James Bond, you know, without the tux. Yeah, and I'm still waiting for my Austin Martin. Maybe it'll show up one day. <laughs> But you had your Walther PPK. I did. I actually did carry one in my ankle most of the time. Well, Rick, it looks like we just about reached the end of our program. So I'd like to take this opportunity to let you share your final thoughts and, and give us your contact information so that folks can learn about your book, Black Ops, Life as a CIA Shadow Warrior. Well, thank you. I mean, uh, you can go to uh, rickprado.com and uh, that'll take you to all the vendors. Uh, I don't sell books directly and neither does the publisher. It goes uh, to Barnes and Noble and, and, and um, Amazon and a couple of others. 
Uh, and, and what I would like to say about the book is that the, the book was written for the right reasons. And, and those right reasons was, I despise the reputation that my poor agency has. We're the most malign agency in the federal government. And, and all we know about CIA, it comes from the movies, Hollywood. And that is not only unfair to the agency, but it's unfair to the 137 people that we have that have sacrificed their lives, most of them anonymously, uh, and there are 137 stars on our wall of honor. I think those individuals deserve their grandchildren to understand what sacrifices their, their great-grandparents did and why. Uh, so that's the purpose of the book. And in the book, you're going to see, and, and you read it, real CIA operations done by real, you know, case officers. No, no Jason Bourne, no American made, no Rambo, just a bunch of patriots trying to outsmart the enemy and winning most of the time. Well, Rick, thank you. And I highly commend the book. I think it's time that America learns the truth about the CIA, certainly with the war in uh, Russia and Ukraine and the historical war of uh, World War II. We need to learn from those experiences and, and your book really helps out with that. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Rick Prado is one amazing man. Reading the book will convince you that he is every bit of a Jack Ryan from the Tom Clancy novels that, uh, and a little bit of James Bond all swirled in. But he's done significant things to protect our country and could have done other significant things to protect our country, but was held back because of a lack of political will or uh, stomach for the kinds of things that CIA field operatives do. Right now, we've got the war raging in Russia and Ukraine, the potential for World War III, if it's not already. We haven't learned the lessons from World War II yet, although people like Rick Prado have been out there trying to teach that and prevent that. So it seems that it's a worthwhile read in, in his book and perhaps to learn a little bit better about what the CIA does, how our laws as a country apply, and how they apply in foreign situations. It is a little bit clandestine, and it is a little bit controversial. Uh, it certainly was with the Contra-Sandinista affair, and uh, as these days, everything tends to turn political, but there's also good reasons for the laws and the way that they're applied, and whether they're applied internationally or applied here at home. So listen up, learn from Rick, and uh, take a page. And for our listeners, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts, your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Please join us next time for another great legal topic. Remember, when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Consult a lawyer.